Let's pray. Lord, come and meet us. Pour out your spirit. Give us yourself. In your own name we pray. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a seat. So the news these days is a, is a scary thing to watch. It's not seemed to be getting a whole lot better. And I find just watching the transitions and the tragedies going on in the world these months, I, I'm feeling it heavily. I'm really feeling it heavily, even the things that aren't close, even things that don't touch me. I'm just feeling it so heavily. It's a paradigm-shifting time in the world. I don't know exactly how. I don't know exactly where. But there's something going on where just so much is moving and shifting. It's they're not going back to how it used to be. God's going to do something new on the other side of it. But I woke up this morning. Has this happened to you? I woke up one week, not this morning, but one one morning this week. I woke up one morning this week, and I had in my head already someone I hadn't thought of in a long, long time. And that was another person who lived through a time of incredible transition and tragedies. He was a Russian. He was an Orthodox Christian and a Russian. He was a philosopher. His name was Nicholas or Nikolai Berdeev. And Berdeev was a young man as the Russian Revolution happened, and originally he embraced it. And he was for it, enthusiastic, but then he saw where it was going. And he said, whoa, this isn't a new creative thing. This is embracing all the same excesses of the Industrial Revolution and squishing people and squishing the earth and all kinds of stuff. He didn't use the verb squishing. But he just saw you know, where he was going. He said, this isn't good. And he, and he pulled back. So then he found that the Orthodox, capital O, Orthodox faith, the Christian faith, stretching back, connected to the ancient days, actually presents a God who's much more for us than he had thought. A God who says yes to his creation. And he, he embraced the kind of, if you will, organic yet also spiritual, the organic spirituality of the Orthodox faith. And he became a rather prominent, brilliant Christian philosopher in Russia that day, in that time. He was professor of philosophy at the University of Moscow, and he was rather outspoken. And so all things, you know, things being what they were, that led to trouble for him. So he was arrested in 1920. He was arrested again in 1922. The head of what was called the Cheka, the, the early secret police, the head himself and his assistant came to interview him. Solzhenitsyn mentions this, actually, is such a big deal that Solzhenitsyn mentions it in his Gulag Archipelagio. He says, Berdeyev was arrested twice. He was taken in 1922 for a midnight interrogation with Dzerzhinsky. He says, Kamenev was also there. But Berdeyev did not humiliate himself. He did not beg. He firmly professed the moral and religious principles by virtue of which he did not adhere to the party in power. And not only did they judge that there was no point in putting him on trial, but he was freed. Solzhenitsyn says, now there's a man with a point of view. He was freed. If you know anything about that era in Russia, you know that going in before, you know, 
Jerzinski and then getting freed is, is not the normal outcome. We'll, just, we'll take that as a bit of Anglican understatement. <laughs> it's not the normal outcome. But nonetheless, of course it led to trouble. And so 99 years ago this month, in September of 1922, Berdeyev and his wife took all the, all the belongings they could carry and whatever books he could talk her into letting him take instead of clothes, and they were forced to get onto the philosopher's ship. If you've ever heard that phrase, the philosopher's ship, in modern, in modern times it refers back to a couple of steamboats that the Soviets hired to come across the Baltic Sea from Germany to St. Petersburg, and they literally put philosophers and theologians and scientists and some other intellectuals on the ships and sent them out into exile and sent them away. So have lived through a period of incredible transition and tragedies, and they got to Germany and they still weren't done, because then Germany became what Germany was in those coming years, largely in reaction over against what the Soviets were, not completely that, but that was part of it. And then they end up eventually in France. They deeply missed their home. They never got to go back to it. But their act of sacrifice was profoundly fertile. Profoundly fertile. During his life, Berdaev wrote more than 15 books. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature seven times. He developed especially a philosophy of creativity. He said things like this, Freedom is the power to create out of nothing. He identified the artist's ability to create something out of nothing with God's ex nihilo act of creation in the beginning. And he saw the artist in that time of inspiration as participating with God in God's creative act. He says it's the power of the spirit to create out of itself. The Spirit inspires and things are created simply from the Spirit. He said, creative experience foreshadows a new heaven and a new earth. This is the point. Berdaev's sacrifice brought him to a place that he could live fertilely in the present and also connected to eternity. He could live in the present moment without something in the back of his head saying, don't pay attention to that. Just, you know, drink crazy, go crazy, because you don't want to think about tomorrow or not anxiety about tomorrow. How am I going to take care of so-and-so? He could live in the present without anxiety about the future or about eternity. The paradox is he came to that place by an act of profound sacrifice. We're going to take that as a comment from the back (laughs) on the whole concept of sacrifice. (laughs) Right? He's just speaking for you all. You're all like, we don't want to hear about sacrifice. And he's like, neither do I. (laughs) That dog has an uncanny ability to sense the moment. I've never met a dog like it. You ever notice? He barks at the end of the liturgy. We say amen, and he goes, woof. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Amazing. Last week, as we've been traveling through, saying, when God says yes, last week we turned the corner. We got to our halfway point, we turned the corner, and we begin to say, 
When God says yes, how do we grab that? Given that God is unseen and intangible, how do we grab hold of that? How do we bring it into ourselves and participate in it and make it real? And last week we said that the answer always has been and always will be sacrifice. And when we sacrifice in the name of Jesus, in solidarity with his sacrifice, we, we, if you will, we bring that, we code it into ourselves. And the cost that we suffer binds us to the reality that God has said yes, because we trust that and we step into it. And when we take that cost, then it becomes more real to us. So last week we talked about fasting. And we said that while fasting has gotten the reputation of being a dualistic thing, spirit against matter, that's not what actually God intended from it. What God intended from it was actually its whole body prayer. It's actually a recognition by God that we are creatures who are body, mind, and spirit. And it's a way of participating with our whole body in our faith and our commitment to God. This week, I'm going to take another step in that sacrifice direction. And this week, we're going to talk about the sacrifice of abandonment, of basically everything. Of being willing to walk away from everything. And we're going to see, again, that Jesus, in his one sermon that we have from him, hence important, we're going to see that he takes us there. So last week... He talked about prayer, he talked about fasting, and then he turns and he begins to talk about money. Jesus talked about money a lot, but the reason for that is because there's so much that hinges on it, right? It's the way we get food, it's the way we get uh, clothes, it's the way we get all kinds of stuff. Our interaction in this world is so largely determined by that stuff. So what Jesus is getting at is our trust level about how we're going to live in our bodies in this world that we are. And so he goes into that, and he says, Don't lay up treasures on earth, where thieves break in and steal, where rust comes and destroys. He says, Lay up treasures in heaven, where no thief can break in, where rust doesn't get to it. He says, Lay up your treasures up there. And then he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, if you've grown up in an American, sorry for this, but if you've grown up in an American evangelical church, what have you been taught about God and money? You've been taught that God doesn't care how much money you have as long as you don't let it control your heart, right? Anybody? Right? Is that what Jesus actually said? Is it? No. He actually says the opposite, doesn't he? Right? Here's the irony. The irony is when we say God doesn't care how much money you have as long as you don't let it control your heart, what we've actually done is we have, unbeknownst to ourselves, we've let dualism in the door. Because what we're then saying, we're saying that Jesus is saying, as long as you can do this inner dualism thing and you can separate the material from the spiritual, you're okay. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus is actually more respectful of us as created beings. And what he says to us is actually more spiritual and organic. 
What he actually says is, your, your, your creature is such that where your treasure is, your heart will be. No getting around it. No dualisms. No saying, I got it, but I don't care about it. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Pretty simple, really. Sorry. Pretty simple, really. Think about it. What's your favorite thing? You stretch yourself. You stretch your budget. You buy that new car. You get that new kitchen. You get that new whatever it is, tennis racket. And then the neighbor who you know doesn't take good care of things comes along and says, hey, I've got a bunch of people coming over. Can I use your kitchen to cook? And what do you say? You say, I don't think so. Hey, I haven't played tennis in forever, but I saw you with your new racket, and I got all inspired. Can I borrow your new racket? Eh, I don't think so. Right? Of course. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. The irony is, again, we've taken it to be God versus matter, but it's actually God respecting the fact that we're created beings. And that's part of who we are. And it's good. And he's working with that. He's giving us a spirituality for that. The next step Jesus takes is seemingly odd, but it's where he makes it positive. He talks about money. He gives us this odd bit. He talks about money. He talks about money. So stuck in the middle of three paragraphs teaching about money is this seemingly odd bit. And it's the bit where he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. The key there is in that word that we translate as healthy. It's a Greek word, haplous. It only shows up here in the entirety of the New Testament. And here's the irony. I'm not saying healthy is a bad translation, but it's one that has an opportunity cost. If you look in the lectionaries, they say this word haplous in ancient Greek should mean single or simple or absolute, which isn't quite the same as healthy, is it? Reread it. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is simple, the whole body will be full of light. Simple meaning not broken up into all these categories, not with some parts hidden and other parts tucked away, but just what it is, just open, just what it is. If your eye is absolute, your whole body will be full of light. Again, this is not Jesus saying, If you give to God, he won't be mad at you and he'll give back to you. This is Jesus just telling us who we are and how we're made to work. The eye is the lamp of the body. What you look at, you put in. It goes into the brain. It gets into your heart. You will care about it. Guys, look at enough bikinis and what are you going to think about when you go to bed at night? It's that simple. You're trying to deal with eating? Look at enough chocolate cookies? Trust me, one of them will get into your tummy. It's just the way it works. 
The eye is the lamp. It's the open space whereby what's going to fill up our imagination, what's going to fill up our heart, what's going to determine our energy, whereby that gets in. Jesus is saying, set the lamp on the kingdom of God in a simple, full, whole, not split up, in an absolute, in a single kind of way, and your whole body will be full of light. We're going to call those contemplation moments. (laughs) So when those happen, we're trusting that the Lord knows that we need to contemplate. So we're just going to wait for them. And you can just, you know, let the Lord take you where he will. And we'll just, we'll just say, thank you, Lord. It's like, this is amazing, right? It's like a whole other variable. If you are worshiping outdoors, you don't get the opportunity for God to decide when the contemplation moments come. Right? This is Jesus helping us reintegrate ourselves, body, mind, and spirit. This is Jesus not wanting us to divide our inner selves up. This is Jesus teaching us part of the limit of being a creature with an eternal soul in a created body. He's teaching us one of the limits of that. He's saying, this happens, it just happens. It's just how you are made. It's just part of it. He's not saying everyone has to go into explicitly vocational Christian work. He's saying it's more about who you are as you carry out your calling and how you go about it, and what spirit you lean on, and what presence you bring into it. What story do you understand yourself to be living? Notice the second part of that. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is single, your whole body. He uses the word body here. Incredibly body-affirming, isn't it? If your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. I love the Paralympics. I wish the Paralympics got on TV as much as the Olympics proper do. You want to see people who know that what you look at and what you commit yourself to determines the energy in your heart? Look at Paralympians. Right? Do you catch any of those stories? These people are amazing. It's incredible. There's now a a good move up front to say... Let's stop qualifying. Let's just acknowledge the worth of what they do and start saying, isn't it amazing what they did, given? I mean, I guess it's implicit, but let's just say, wow. Look at the commitment of these folks. Look what they do. Jesus is trying to bring us to a place of profound trust. His next paragraphs will be the ones where he says, do not worry about tomorrow. He'll say, you know, look at the birds. They're not worried about tomorrow. Look at the flowers. Are you not of more value than those? He's saying, trust your father. Trust him. He cares about your life. He cares about your body. He's trying to give you the way of freedom, the way of soul freedom. And the way of soul freedom, paradoxically, is to be willing to sacrifice everything. And Jesus, of course pioneers the path. Jesus is the one who sacrifices everything voluntarily, substitutionarily for us, for others. 
painfully, publicly, in the worst way imaginable, with all the people who do it, do it to him thinking they've won. You ever think about that part of it? If you're Jesus, don't you want to come down off the cross even for just a minute and say, ha ha, I could do this if I wanted, and then pop back up there. Don't you just want them to know that you're right and you know it? The trust, right? Jesus, it wasn't easy for him. He's in the garden and he's praying and he says, not my will but yours. In John's gospel, his last word on the cross is, it is finished. It's a wonderful Greek word. It takes the idea of telos, the goal, the fulfillment, the completion of the story. It's the verb form of telos, tetelestai. Sorry, stay with me, a little bit more grammar. It's the verb form of telos in what's called the perfect tense. And the reason it's called the perfect tense is, again, the Greeks think of perfect not meaning without any flaw, but so beautiful, but meaning having reached its completion. And so the perfect tense means some act has reached its completion. And the completion of that act has implications that carry forward. And so when Jesus, in the only place in the New Testament where tetelestai is said in the perfect tense, the verb telos, the verb form of telos is said in the perfect tense. When Jesus says that, what he's saying is, I have completed it. The story can now go forward. The dots, essentially what he's saying is the dots between eternity and the present are connected. Right here. You can trust me. You can give it all up. You can live in the present, in me, and trust the Father because of his love, because of his goodness, because he says yes. And because you can do that, the present and eternity are connected, and you can live in a present that is mystically the eternal present. Buy into the story. So what do we do if we do have a lot of money? Or what do we do if we just do have a comfortable life? I mean, we live here on the leafy, swanky North Shore. The ocean's beautiful and all the rest. I want to say sacrifice until the math changes for you. Whatever that is. Sacrifice is only sacrifice if you feel it, right? If you don't feel it, it isn't sacrifice. It can still be a good thing, but it isn't just by definition. It's not a sacrifice until you've given up something else for the sake of that, right? Just by definition. So whether it's your financial math or whether it's your classic time, investing in the ways that God has given you opportunity and gift and passion and where you feel his pleasure. Just get into it to a degree that costs you something. But not for doing its sake. Do it connected in your own heart and mind to the sacrifice of Jesus in solidarity. Say, God, I'm going to do this in a way that costs me. I'm doing that by faith in you. I want to be making it real. I want to be making my trust in you real. I want to find you in the everyday as I make sacrifice. To be in solidarity with your sacrifice. Pray about it. Do it in the way that he speaks to you. 
It's an opportunity and an invitation. It's an opportunity to go deeper and to grab on when God says yes. Let's go back and pick up our hero for this morning, Berdeyev. Berdeyev in France, reflecting on what's happened, writing these 15 books. Here's a few things. Berdeyev says of the spiritual life, he says, victory over fear is the first spiritual duty of man. Victory over fear is the first spiritual duty of the human being. Berdeyev on sacrifice. The greatest mystery of life is that satisfaction is felt not by those who take and make demands, but by those who give and make sacrifices. Essentially, God made the world to be a world of love. The greatest satisfaction is not by those who make demands, but by those who make sacrifices. Every moral act of love, of mercy, and of sacrifice brings to pass the end of the world where hatred, cruelty, and selfishness reign supreme. Here's the last one. If you like your philosophy rather direct and quite livable, bread for myself is a material question. Bread for my neighbor is a spiritual one. That's pretty good, huh? Let's pray, friends. Thank you, God, for saying yes to us and to your world in Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for trusting the larger story, living into it, fulfilling and completing your literally crucial part of it. invite you, Father, to speak to us now by your Spirit and invite us into whatever place you would have us in solidarity with your Son to walk into. We bless you, Lord. We thank you in your own name.